Now I ask you again your occupation. I am a librarian, sir. That is my occupation. That is my profession. If you people choose to call that obsolete... Request clarification of the term? Yes, the term, uh, Mr. Wordsworth. You people, you make reference to the state? I make reference to the state. And you persist in declaring your occupation as being that of a librarian. Is that correct? That is correct, sir. A librarian having to do with books. We're going to go for a joyride. You've just made a wrong turn heading south onto strange highways. Enter Death's waiting room, if you dare. And welcome to Strange Highways. I am Paul. And I'm Kevin. And we it's it's Burgess Meredith Day again here on Strange Highways. So we are joined again by the wonderful El Goro of the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. Welcome back, sir. Gentlemen, I am delighted to cast pods in the highways of strangeness with you. Hopefully we shall not be rendered obsolete. Okay, I swear that's going to be the last Matt Hardy reference I make on the show. Just yeah, I, I promised Paul I wouldn't make any. <laughs> so thank you for doing it for me. <laughs> I made no such promises. Um, so I, I told Paul I was really excited when I started watching this episode. When they used the term liquidation, I thought they were going to say deleted. And I thought I discovered where this whole Matt Hardy thing in WWE came from. Or I guess TNA before. Um, I, I was disappointed, but still, close I'm, enough. <laughs> I'm still not entirely convinced he didn't watch this, so... Yeah, yeah. So um, <laughs> that was amazing. I, I, I'm done. I guess we're done here. Good night, <laughs> folks. Uh, so yeah, this is a uh, season two, episode twenty nine. The the end of season two. Um, the obsolete man. Uh, so air date June second, nineteen sixty one. Number one film, A Raisin in the Sun. Number one song, Traveling Man by Ricky Nelson. And I did not look this up. I should have Ricky Nelson. That was the young singer songwriter kid that was like the heartthrob that died early, right? Uh, yeah. and he was in uh, Rio Bravo, right? Is that the one that was in there with um, uh, John Wayne and um, uh, what's his face? You know, Dean Martin. Was that him? Yes. Oh, so then I know who this is. So yeah, he was he was you know you know pretty pretty good looking kid, and I, I've not yeah. heard this song, he but that, uh, he did that "My Rifle, My Pony, and Me" song. I yeah. believe was his. That's right. Yep. And they're all just sitting in the jail, just having a good old time. Whenever they're all about to go face their doom, yeah. So. Uh, Rio Bravo is a good movie, but a little, a little weird towards the end when they all start singing. Yeah, <laughs> that was the style of the time, the yeah. singing cowboy. Yeah. <clears throat> so I didn't find anything for uh, the second, but as the third, uh, this is interesting. I think this is actually kind of pertinent to the episode. Uh, there was a gentleman who uh, he was. His name was Clar- Clarence Earl Gideon. He was a 50-year-old drifter, was arrested in Panama City, Florida after being accused of uh, a burglary of the Bay Harbor Pool Room. 
Unable to afford an attorney, he was convicted and sentenced to five years in prison. Gideon filed his own petition for review in the United States Supreme Court. The court's ruling in the landmark case of Gideon versus Wainwright established that the state courts could would be required to provide counsel for any criminal um, unable to afford an attorney. So mm-hmm. that that feels like that's kind of pertinent with this, with uh, due process yeah, and him, yeah, yeah, that's him going up against the state. Yeah. Um, and it's one of those things that I guess we've always kind of taken as a, as a right, but this was kind of established in the sixties. Uh, and then it wouldn't be an episode of strange highways without a weird, uh, animal story. So also on this day, uh, a pigeon died. That's not what was important, but this pigeon was referred to as GI Joe. He was 18. It was a British war pigeon who was credited with saving the lives of over a thousand soldiers of the British 56th infantry. Uh, he had flown a message about a potential strike that got in time for everybody to clear out. So the bird flew and delivered a message just in the nick of time to save the lives of wise people. So this bird is a war hero, and it passed away that you know on the, on the third of sixty one. Wow! So well, actually, eighteen. It was eighteen. That's <laughs> wow. impressive. Yeah. yeah. Now I did. I did actually find something that uh, I think Kevin will find interesting. But uh, June second, nineteen sixty one, was actually the birthday of Des Kadena, who was the third vocalist and later rhythm guitarist for Black Flag. Yeah, very nice. Yeah. He was in the Misfits for a wit- for a bit too, right? Yeah, I think from looking at this, two thousand one to twenty fifteen. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Nice. Yeah, it was also uh, Liam Cunningham's birthday, too. Uh, he was born that day from uh, Dog Soldiers and probably most well-known for his role as Davos on Game of Thrones. Oh, I oh, didn't yeah. know that. Oh, that's great. Okay. Yeah, we haven't had a good celebrity birthday in a while, so that's there's true. two for you. There you go. He was the, he's yeah, the I, I don't knight. know how I missed Eskadina. Like, I feel like that would have popped up on some of my birthday sources. <laughs> I would look up. <laughs> I like that you guys found pop culture. I'm like, eh, bird died, you know, like whatever. <laughs> I, well, yours probably had a greater impact, you know, on people's lives, but you know, punk rock. Uh, I don't know. Black flag had a pretty big influence on my life. So <laughs> that's true. Um, yeah. I mean, that bird was no Hyperion. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> good riddance. Oh, ha- hashtag RIP Hyperion. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> maybe we never forget. And I'm sure that might play into next week. We'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there was a lot of things that happened uh, around the, the, the episode that, that we're about to talk about. That's pretty amazing. Yep. So we'll jump into cast and crew here. This episode was directed by Elliot Silverstein, who directed three other future episodes of the Twilight Zone. So we'll be seeing him again. Um, probably most famously, he directed Cat Baloo with Jane Fonda. Uh, I think Lee Marvin. I think Lee Marvin won an Oscar for that one. Um, also directed A Man Called Horse. And then a few good horror movies. I'm actually a big fan of most. Uh, I'm biggest fan of the movie The Car that he Love did that film uh, with James Brolin, which is fantastic. If you guys haven't checked it out, um, and then Nightmare Honeymoon, which isn't isn't as good, but it's kind of a fun movie. And he did four episodes of Tales from the Crypt. Huh. See, I haven't seen Nightmare Honeymoon, but I kind of want to because it's the lead guy in that is named Dak Rambo. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing name. That's an incredible <laughs> name. I want that name. And uh, yeah, does, it's not as good as the car, but it's definitely worth checking out. Uh, he's still with us, by the way. Like he's uh, he just his last work was Tales from the Crypt, and I guess he just does some uh, script supervision. So he's still out there working. It's just nothing like prominent in front of the camera. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if he's a fan of uh, going to county fairs. That's what I want now. <laughs> 
Sorry, Ian. <laughs> You'll have to listen to last week's episode. <laughs> this is what I get for missing a week. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, so that's all I got for Elliot Silverstein. Uh, next up, this episode was written by Rod Serling. Um, that's it. So, <laughs> uh, Cast, we have Burgess Meredith returning as Romney Wordsworth. And we've talked about him previously with uh, El Goro with Time Enough at Last and Mr. Dingle the Strong. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, then we have Fritz Weaver also returning, playing the Chancellor in this episode. And we talked about him. He was the role in Third from the Sun on the first season. Yeah. William Sturka, which is a great name. So I had to mention that again. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, then next up, we have, uh, you'll have to help me with this one, Paul. Uh, Joseph Ellick who plays the subaltern who uh all three of those words are weird so yeah good luck yeah yeah thanks <laughs> <laughs> yeah he was in uh one flew over the cuckoo's nest which i want to bring up because uh milos foreman just passed away last week i think it was like april 13th uh 2018 so um uh, pretty big loss for the film community uh but Joseph Bielek is in one other Twilight Zone episode, and then two weird things he was in that I'm kind of a fan of. Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, nice. which I don't know if you guys have seen that. Oh, I, many, many times. Yes, it's a fun one. Not as good as uh, Santa Claus the feature, or whatever it's called, with uh, <laughs> Santa Claus versus the Devil. But yeah, me- Mexican uh, Santa Claus, I call that one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, have, we have a long... I think I've gone into it on the show... Um, long family tradition with that movie. So we called Santa Claus the feature for some reason. Um, and then he was also in this made for TV Halloween special called the Halloween that almost wasn't, which I actually just checked out, checked out a few years ago and, uh, kind of lost on me. I think it's something that you have to have memories of to really get. I think the nostalgia just missed me, but I love Halloween. So I enjoyed it for what it was. Works for me. Yeah, it's on YouTube, so if you guys want to check that one out around the Halloween season this year, we're getting there, Paul. We're almost there. <laughs> it's April, you're right, so we're just we're almost there. Yeah. I think last, uh, was it last August, I started getting in the Halloween mood, and you got mad at me. So Yeah, I did. I'm, I'm pushing it back to April this year. Yeah, I heard, I heard Pumpkin Spice comes May 1st. That's what I've heard, so... <laughs> I'd be down. Uh, <laughs> Giggity. And then uh, two quick ones. We have Harry Fleer, who plays a guard in this episode. He's in one other future episode of The Twilight Zone. And then uh, I want to bring up, because it's an awesome name, he's one of the board members, uh, Harold Innocent. Yes. And uh, he had two pretty big roles uh, in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and in Brazil. So I thought that was cool to see him in uh, some stuff. And Harold Innocent is a sweet name. It is. Oh, yeah. He I, did play a judge in a few things, which I think is an amazing actor name to play a judge. Um, so Harry Fleer, I just want to mention one of his last roles was in the film Little Giants, and I never thought I'd mention Little Giants in the context of the Twilight Zone. That's the <laughs> that's the Rick Moranis um, uh, uh, Al Bundy uh, film where they pair off with the little the little football teams, right? So it's not it's not a good movie, but you know if you see Little Giants, you got to mention it. Um, and then also Barry Brooks was a board member. He, I just want to mention he was in an episode of the fall guy just because it's the fall guy. And you got to mention that too. Um, and that's it. Like I, there, like, there was a lot of people in this episode, uh, but he just, they were there for a second and they all dressed the same and they all looked alike. So it was hard to, to tell who was who. Yeah. 
Um, really upset this week. There's no Hawaiian Eye or Johnny Midnight. I really so I know. Thought, I looked. Yeah. <laughs> I really thought there would be something. Yeah. One star episode. I'm done. <laughs> I was even looking for uh, uh, appearances in Super Train, and I couldn't find anything. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, Super Train. That's a throwback. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's that's our um, yeah, that's our cast and crew. Uh, let's just t- take it away with Sterling. So just heads up, this one's like a minute long. It's but it's wonderful. I hope you guys enjoy. You walk into this room at your own risk, because it leads to the future. Not a future that will be, but one that might be. This is not a new world. It is simply an extension of what began in the old one. It has patterned itself after every dictator who has ever planted the ripping imprint of a boot on the pages of history since the beginning of time. It has refinements, technological advances, and a more sophisticated approach to the destruction of human freedom. But like every one of the super states that preceded it, it has one iron rule. Logic is an enemy and truth is a menace. This is Mr. Romney Wordsworth. In his last 48 hours on Earth, he's a citizen of the state but will soon have to be eliminated because he is built out of flesh and because he has a mind. Mr. Romney Wordsworth, who will draw his last breaths in the twilight zone. So Sterling is usually pretty straightforward with his intros, but this is he's very subdued with the way he does this, and it it, it it's pays dividends. Like this is uh it's a really, really good intro to this episode. Um and this is already like a couple minutes in with just the imagery, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a second. Mm. Yeah, yeah now, go ahead. I want to bring up real quick, uh this intro is the one they used on the most recent Run the Jewels album for the song Thieves. It came on and I was like, I know this intro. <laughs> oh nice. Yeah, it's pretty See, cool. I, lo- I love when I find the source for samples. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it, obviously, I knew it was from Twilight Zone, but I didn't know which episode <laughs> it was, and I never looked it up, so it was a nice surprise. So, What I, were you going to say before, oh. uh, El Goro? I was didn't just saying you that you could really tell from the narration as well as some of the dialogue that we'll go into, you get the sense that this was one of his important episodes that pop up from time to time. You know, he, he writes the gamut on this as you guys have explored, but every once in a while, it seems like there comes along an episode where he wants it to be treated seriously. Yeah. You can always tell by how scatterbrained his intros are written (laughs) and whether or not this episode may or may not be good. And, um, you could tell immediately, even with his body language and the way he was kind of like leaning forward towards the camera, um, you could tell that he was serious on this one. And it, I, I had never seen this one before. Um, I don't know about your guys' history with this, and it got me really excited for this episode just from his intro. Yeah, this was actually the only Burgess Meredith episode that I hadn't seen. So it was I was definitely interested to check it out, particularly since I was curious if they were going to be retreading similar territory as uh, Time Enough at Last. What with the whole uh, bibliophile connection between the two characters. Yeah, yeah, and they sure do. They do. Yeah, I I'd actually had seen this one previously, so I'm really excited that this was your guys' first time watch. Because I feel like this is one of those ones that, like, it belongs, like, I'm guessing tipping my hand, this belongs up there with the conversation of, like, the great episodes. Uh, it's just because it isn't so 
sci-fi as it is dystopian, you know, and I think that might be why people don't always think of this one um, versus like Time Enough at Last. But uh, I just want to mention that uh, Elliot Silverstein actually had a background in directing theater before he came over into TV, and he was pushing some of the boundaries of what they could do with uh, with the sets and scenery. And just the beginning of this, when you see the 28-foot door open, <laughs> Mm. Um, and it's like everything in this, everything in the courtroom is stark and exaggerated and you know, you're in for, uh, something completely different, you know? And, um, and it's not something we've seen before in the twilight zone. Yeah. yeah. It, it's similar. Cause we've talked about like, uh, the use of like the German expressionism, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of visual that we've seen, but nothing to this level like this courtroom set looks like something out of the cabinet of dr caligari you know like it's so exaggerated and so terrifying looking uh, it looks like it's out of a nightmare and i i love both the sets the courtroom and the library um, <laughs> yeah, i'm a big it, fan yeah and it, it's interesting that for an episode that in another series would uh, probably refer to as a bottle episode you know one of the ones designed to preserve money so limit the limit the uh, sets limit how much expenditure is going to be involved just how much artistry they were still able to get out of this because essentially in this episode we have two sets and as you mentioned one of them is just so incredibly stark yet through the painting of shadow and light it becomes one of the more interesting and dare i say iconic visuals to show up in the series thus far yeah yeah and it, it seems like twilight zone uh when they're not cutting costs from a technology standpoint, they do some of their best work when they're put to these financial restraints. And because um, we've seen so many episodes where it's just like two people in a room or three people in a room talking and it ends up being like the most exciting episode we've seen. <laughs> and this is no different. Like they they bring in these directors that know how to stretch a dollar and it really shows. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, if you would have told me this was Douglas Hayes, I would have believed it. I would have been happy because, you know, he's no longer directing any future episodes of The Twilight Zone in the series. But that felt like something he would do, you know? And Yeah, it's like Douglas Hayes on steroids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, when I, when I watched the episode, I was expecting it to be Douglas Hayes and looked it up. It's like, who is this Elliot Silverstein guy? Oh, yeah. Capaloo. I know that. <laughs> so, yeah, Kevin, I guess, Kevin, if you wanted to start off the, the episode in proper, because I'm just like, yeah, it looks cool. And then we kind of skipped over the story. Yeah, well, the story, I mean, this is, again, a very verbose episode, and uh, it, there's not really too much to it. He kind of has uh, a few main points he hits, and he really drives them home in this. But, yeah, so we get a man being led into the courtroom. We find out it's his last 48 hours, and it's uh, Burgess Meredith as Romney Wordsworth, and you find out that the state is being led by this... Uh, this kind of fascist dictator, the chancellor um, that we see in this episode. And he has a court rendering people obsolete and they're put to death. So you find out that uh, Wordsworth, uh, which I love that name. It's, it's kind of on the nose, but I love it. Um, you find out that he's a librarian and that books have been banned and there are no more libraries. So there's no use for him. So he's one of these people that is no use to anyone. It's no use to the state and he's to be put to death. And I, I think one of my favorite things is every time he says he's a librarian, that all of the boards 
members like surrounding him would laugh every time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I love how they try to give him like some outs because it's clearly uh, a fact within the society that there are no librarians. And then just by admitting it, he's um, well, he's he's making himself guilty. Yeah. Yeah. But he's so defiant in the way he says it. And uh, I, I love all of the dialogue in this episode. The deliveries are perfect. Um, and it, I, I love how it builds this world. We only see two sets, but you kind of get the idea just based on what stories came before this from like other writers, because this has like a 1984 and uh, Fahrenheit 451 feel going out. So you can kind of like take what those stories have created and place them within the context of those. Mm -hmm. And just through dialogue, they've already built the world outside of these two sets. And I was really, really impressed by that. Oh, definitely. And that's the thing is you watch this episode. It's not like it's necessarily breaking new ground, because as you mentioned, it does have shades of Orwell and shades of uh, Bradbury with uh, 1984 Mm -hmm. and and Fahrenheit 451, respectively. And then even after that, there would be plenty of stories featuring kind of iconoclastic characters in this dystopian setting. The ones that came to my mind, and these were stories that that uh, well, one of them was actually uh, printed the same year was uh, Kirk Vonnegut's Harrison Bergeron. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, one of my favorite stories by Harlan Ellison, which would come about four years later, Repent Harlequin, said the TikTok man. Yeah, I, I haven't read that one. But, That's uh, a good one. I haven't read it. I just did the moment you said that, though. I know Stephen King read that one. I can tell you that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, granted, granted uh, Harlan Ellison's uh, sensibilities are slightly more anarchic and fuck <laughs> you than Rod Serling's. So. Oh, come on. But, uh, Burgess Meredith was, uh, he was <laughs> pretty insolent in this episode. This is like, true. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I know we're whereas, probably... whereas one defi- defies the states by keeping books and reading the Bible. Um, yeah, the, the uh, Harlequin does <laughs> different things because it's Harlan Ellison. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. But yeah, so even though it is familiar science fiction territory, and even though it, what struck me when I was initially uh, hearing the dialogue is that it did come off very similar to some of Rod Serling's introductions and monologues insofar that it was very clearly written. It's the idea that when, when sometimes people write dialogue, they have a tendency to write things that sound great on the page, but don't sound natural coming out of the mouths of humans. Yeah. Especially Serling who can be pretty dry. Mm-hmm. And uh, from what we've seen with him trying to write comedy, um, that's gotta <laughs> be true. So I, could you imagine if uh, put Dick York in one of these roles? Yeah, <laughs> like how exactly. bad this dialogue would have been. I mean, like yeah. how easily this episode would have turned into just a nightmare I want him to in be a the bad chancellor. way. <laughs> I want him to be the chancellor so bad. That's what, now that you said that, that'd be amazing. Oh, just giving like quirky looks to the side every time uh, he says he's a librarian. Just like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 because we have people like Burgess Meredith, who as I mentioned on. Um, well, the last times that I've spoken about him, he just has this genial sense of familiarity and just inspiring of empathy that you can give him almost any dialogue and he's going to find a way to deliver it that puts you 100% on his side. And then con- uh, contrasting it, you have the Fritz, Fritz Weaver character who does feel, it feels appropriate that he's making, that he's not speaking like a normal human being. He is making pronouncements because he is the embodiment of the state. 
And yeah. I think Weaver does a good job of kind of digging into that sort of Hitler-esque territory. Definitely. And I, I love when he's kind of going back and forth between uh, with uh, Burgess Meredith's character, um, how every once in a while he'll make like a good point to him and then pick up the microphone and say it again as if everyone else in the country would be able to hear well, him. Describe where uh, he is, though, like this paint the picture of his position in this courtroom, because we haven't talked about that. We talked about the large door, but William Sturker's character, where is he in this scene? And it's such a, it's almost Monty Python-esque where he's at, you know, when he's given these, like when he's talking to Burgess Meredith and when he's given these big grand speeches to the state at large with how, how tall is that pulpit that he's on? Like, what is that? Like probably like 15, 20 feet in the air. Oh, yeah, that, that podium yeah. has got to be like at least 20 feet up in and the it's, air. It's high and then narrow. the table that his uh, his I don't know what you want to call him. Subaltern. Uh, subaltern. There you yeah. go. <laughs> the, the, um, the Jossip. Yeah, that's who that is. Yeah, the Jossip. That's a, that's the new word. Um, the table that he sits in has to be another 20 feet out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it's really exaggerated set pieces in this. And it's interesting because. You know, I, I grew up, and I, uh, you gentlemen did too, at a time where that sort of exaggerated um, authoritarian imagery had entered into the realm of parody. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, lo- we look at Terry Gilliam's Brazil, where he utilizes a lot of this stuff, <laughs> and it's meant, as you mentioned, Monty Python, you know, bring, it brings to mind that it's turning it on its head. It's making it look ridiculous, whereas in this time period, it was played completely straight. Yeah, yeah. And, and with the low angle camera pointing up, like at, at the chancellor and then even with Serling, when the cam- camera tilted over and cut to him, like you mentioned, Kevin, how he was leaning into the camera, it was a downward angle. So it was still from a, a, an angle of superiority. And I know Serling was kind of doing that kind of ironically, but it was showing that like authority, you always had to look up to no matter what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll jump back into the story here. So he talks about uh, at one point they get into a religious debate that the state had proved that there is no God. And uh, Burgess Meredith talks about how there is a God and everything. And uh, that's that's one of those moments where the chancellor picks up the mic and says, like, the state has proved there is no God, like announcing it to the country. And I, I, I love all that stuff. But so. They finally sentence him and the board, which is just a bunch of people all kind of dressed the same standing on both sides. Um, they sentence him to be liquidated, uh, not deleted. Uh, <laughs> Shame. Yeah. So uh, it, the deal is he gets the pick which way he goes. So he gives them some op- options between like pills, gas, electrocution. Uh, he can do it anytime within the next 48 hours. So. He basically tells uh, he's going to have the assassin and his rule. is He wants only him and the assassin to know the way that he's going to be taken out. And he wants there to be a live audience watching it as it happens. So and it's going to happen the next night at midnight. Yeah. And I like that, uh, that um, uh, the, the subaltern is like, can we do this? And the chancellor is like, of course, like, yeah, yeah, we'll clearly we'll do this televised because that's one of the things he requests too. And he makes the comment in there, and I have it in my notes. Um, what was it? Uh, they I forget how many people he said we televised thirteen hundred people put to death in less than six hours. I think he says that later. But yeah. the whole thing about the glorifying of execution in front of an audience. You know, it's like he's like, of course, I'll show this librarian dying. We'll do that. So it's almost like he relishes this opportunity to tear this man down. 
yeah, oh, yeah, just to show how powerful the state is. But I mean, that's ultimately his undoing is just his ego. He, he believes how strong he is. He's not willing to like put anything aside and ask why this man wants to do this. Mm-hmm. Well, it's because he's so secure in his position, and why yeah. why wouldn't he be? You know, he is the head of the body that is the state, the body that has killed God, the body that can decide, you know, who yeah, who whether you live or die exactly. And even even his glee of uh, making the execution public that speaks to the use of execution by states throughout all of history, because at its at its heart. Uh, executions without going too political, just simply looking at the historical basis and the historical justification for it, they were intended not only as a punishment, but also as a deterrent and also as a way of demonstrating the state's power. Yeah. And they really focus in on the whole state's power thing because uh, we are jumping ahead a little bit, but right after he talks about killing the 1,300 people in six hours or whatever it was, um, he, he has a line which is really messed up. Uh, saying that Hitler and uh, Stalin did not go far enough mm-hmm. with who they killed. Yep. I, that that really caught me off guard because I was not expecting <laughs> this episode to go that dark <laughs> again this week. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it's just it was it was kind of shocking to me even today to hear someone say that, especially well, so close to Hitler and everything being well, in 1961. Yeah. Well, and even even closer to Stalin, looking yeah, at that. Yeah, well, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I like the fact that they actively engaged with, with that because you had to think that audiences at the time, and of course audiences even now, that's the first thing they think of when you think of the idea of the dystopian state. We, we are trained and primed. Uh, in our case, through use of pop culture and history, for the for the case of the audience, people who actually lived that history, to associate it with those worst examples. And thus, we bring up the specter of Hitler, and we bring up the specter of Stalin in so many of our dystopian depictions of a bad future. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, we'll jump back a little bit here. So it's the next day, uh, his alarm goes off, he's in bed, and he hears a knock on the door. And it turns out to be the Chancellor. And you find out that uh, Wordsworth has invited him there for some reason that the chancellor doesn't quite know. But the chancellor is there because he wants to prove that the state has no fear and that he wants to show his face and say that he's going to beat this guy. And um, so he there's a whole back and forth about how uh, Wordsworth says that he doesn't fit into the mold and that he doesn't know how to handle this. The chancellor doesn't know how to handle this situation. And I love it because you can start to see the, uh, the chancellor questioning himself as he realizes he's kind of over his, <laughs> in over his head at this point. Yeah. Cause I know uh, Burgess Meredith strip says, I don't fit your formula. Like basically he's acknowledging the chancellor can't quite understand like the point of other than witnessing his death. He doesn't. He, he's he's not putting all the pieces together of being in this room full of books. Which, by the way, there's a book in the foreground that's like the size of seven books. I don't know if you guys saw the Chancellor put his hand on it. This thing was overly large. I don't understand what that book was, but um, it, it was weird. Uh, but it's you, a phone you, book. <laughs> yeah, because uh, even that's outlawed. You can, you don't even know who to call. You know, um, but. <laughs> And also, just calling back to time enough at last, it's just kind of also kind of charming to have Burgess Meredith surrounded by all the books, by the way. Uh, but I like that he um, basically is like poking at the Chancellor the entire time and then pointing out the the lighting rigs and the camera 
um, and, and how that all kind of turns on pretty much as soon as the chancellor walks in. And I like that there's yeah. this like public dialogue between the state and the condemned man. Yeah. Yep. So he walks out and you find out that he's been kept alive. Basically he, he's been useful because he was a carpenter. So he had built all of his bookshelves and everything, but he's finally overstayed his welcome or something. The way <laughs> chancellor put it. Um, but so he says, you know, you can cry and plead. You can, you can start doing that now. Like you're going to die soon. And, so then we find out why Burgess Meredith's character actually invited him there. And he tells him that a bomb will go off at midnight and he's locked the door. So the chancellor is stuck in there with him. So he, I, and then he has a great moment where he looks at the camera and kind of asks like, how does one react to this? Yeah. And it depends on the person. It depends on the situation. Just watch. <laughs> it's great because you can start. You see the chancellor getting more and more nervous from this point on in the episode. Mm-hmm. And he says directly, he's like, how will you spend your last moments, chancellor? You're cheating the audience. You're not facing the camera. Like he's basically <laughs> yeah. calling him well, out it, because there's that's a what lot he, of. Yeah there's a lot of recall within the lines because a lot of the stuff like the chancellor telling him to cry and plead um there comes a point where burgess meredith gives that line back to him and then there's the the chancellor earlier when he walks in the room say like look at the camera like let them see you cry and plead and everything and then he tells him to look at the camera later i love the contrast between these two characters yeah, and yeah I, it's, a, oh, it's, a, it's a brilliant touch. And one thing that I also love it was sort of the inversion of the staging that we saw in the beginning. Because even though in this particular posi- or, uh, setup, the power dynamics between them had fundamentally shifted. Yeah. Still, uh, from a physical standpoint, Burgess Meredith was uh, sitting throughout this entire thing, and the camera still had him pointed down, and they were still using low angle shots on the Chancellor. But it was it was almost uh, in in an ironic sense. Yeah. Well, and I like too because like um, there was a bit earlier in the courtroom. Um, whenever Burgess Meredith steps out, uh, steps away from the table, and and um, the Chancellor, you know, yells at him, he's like, "Step into the light." So it's like there's this whole bit too where he's basically saying, No, you gotta step into your moment now too. And it's just I loved the twisting of of everything that was said before. At one point the Chancellor says they and um and Burgess Meredith's character is like, I asked for clarification of the term they. It was like <laughs> like it was what like so we've seen Burgess Meredith be kind of the mousy guy that was pushed around and time enough at last and you felt bad for him. And then you, you kind of sympathize with him and uh, Mr. Dingle, the strong. I like this take. Uh, like I like this performance the, the most so far because he gets to play with intelligence. Like he gets to have the upper hand and he is wonderful in this moment. And then when he basically says, you know what? I've been found guilty for all this stuff. I'm going to read my Bible that I've kept for 20 years. You guys don't even know. And he just sits there and starts reading the Bible out loud in front of the state, in front of the cameras. Yeah. Well, the chancellor is getting sweatier and smoking and just chain smoking. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure those are Oasis cigarettes. They better be chancellor. Only it's cigarette sanctioned. It's, it's the official the cigarette state. of the state. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as, as the clock is tip, tipping, uh, ticking down, which uh, kind of reminded me of the silence, actually, in the way that that was in there. Yeah, with yeah. with uh, the, the they kept showing the, the the clocks, and it was it was a good way to get a lot of, across a lot. But I also like the, the fact that um, basically the chancellor is like, well, someone will come help me, and then he was in 
Burgess Meredith's character, Wordsworth, was like, yeah, call for help. Do you think the state's going to help you? He's like, you know, basically, if you show weakness, they're not going to come for you. And if you show strength, then you're dying for the state. You know, mm, so it's like yeah. you're you're done. No matter what you do here, you're done. And it, it's it's like a master stroke. And I, and I, I loved it. Yeah, and then we get we get a great shot of the chancellor's uh, reflection in the lens of the camera on the wall, mm-hmm. and he finally breaks and runs out the door, trying to get out and everything. And uh, Burgess Meredith actually Wordsworth lets him out of the room. Well, he says, and so, "Like, let me out." He's like, in, "In the name of God, let me out." And 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 he yeah. says, "Well, in the name of God, I will let you out." Yeah. And, and that was like, that's it, you know. Yeah, so he he runs down the stairs, and as soon as he gets onto the stairs, there's an explosion out of the room. Um, yeah, and so at that point, we go back to the boardroom, and as soon as the chancellor comes through those giant doors again, there's a new chancellor sitting on top of that 20-foot podium, <laughs> uh, and he's being rendered obsolete. And he goes to the board members, and they all start chanting obsolete. And it's it's great. It's so, like <laughs> so. What did you guys this, think? Like I, just just from a snap emotional reaction after all this wonderful performances from both uh, Sturka and Meredith, like they're going toe to toe with each other, and it's wonderful. Then you get to the end of this, and it becomes a nightmare. Like what? Mm-hmm. Like what was the like? Did you guys see that coming at all? I, I didn't see the descent into what was almost a carnival of souls territory with <laughs> yeah, the no, savagery. <laughs> <laughs> I but saw may- the I saw the twist of the chancellor coming. Oh sure, like, yeah. Where else do you go with that character? Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's there's the weird moment when he's trying to run out and everyone's putting their hands up like Scooby Doo villains almost <laughs> at him. And there's I was that thinking weird... West Side Story, like the sharks and the jets were about to like throw down. Well, they like... weren't they weren't snapping though. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, but then they make that weird noise all together. Yeah, that's almost like the the classical piece that's in. Uh, um, 2001 space odyssey um with everyone just slowly like before they go after him and it was weird but it was really effective yeah and you know it's it's again it's it's playing upon uh established science fiction elements that have already been explored i mean the idea of a sort of feralness behind the austere um quality of the, of this dystopian state. I mean, that was in 1984. That was, of course, in in uh, Animal Farm. And it's it's always kind of that sense that the, these sorts of things, that they, they're able to exist because they tap in and give sort of license within a controlled way to, the, to mankind's most primal base instincts. And that when you strip away all of that, uh, all of the, the pomp and all of the severity and the ceremony of the state... It's just filled with animals. Yeah, you take away the courtroom, you take away the cameras, and they're just killing to kill. Yep. Like, that's basically it. The, um, the so, yeah, it, they, yeah, they all kind of attack him and they drag him across the yes. table. You get a great Dutch angle of him going across that long, long table. It's fantastic. And then they take him on the floor and they all just kind of pile around him. And that's, and that's it. 
which that by the way the 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 the, um, the doling out of punishment seems a bit weird you know like they're like hey wordsworth you get to choose what you want hey chancellor we're gonna tear you apart like i just feel that felt like there was a well, just a like, well i took it as the state learned their lesson and that, they're not gonna fair. let people choose their own fate anymore because uh they've been outsmarted and that's not gonna happen again so. yeah I, th- I think in that case it was just rod serling giving into his uh flair for the dramatic yeah, yeah. <laughs> I try and put some sort of sense to it, but uh, you're definitely right. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it's, it's, it's a hammer of an ending, right? Like, it's like, you know, you obviously know because since the Chancellor called out to God and was let free and basically proved Wordsworth's point, you knew it wasn't going to end well for him. But being it was, you know, made for broadcast like TV, you, you know what's going on. And they, they went up to the line of what they could get away with. And it is haunting. Yeah, like I said, so. it, it reminds me of Carnival of Souls. It reminds me of Night of Living Dead, even. Yeah. Like, which came after this, but like, uh, just the way the people were moving. It was, it was nightmarish. It was great. So, uh, what did you guys think of uh, Sturka's performance? Like, I know Bur- Burgess Meredith was uh, awesome and I loved it, but I, I don't know who else I would have wanted to play the Chancellor. Yeah, I, I thought he was great. I think he was the perfect, uh, I mean, I mean, it calls for that straight man performance, you know, the unfaltering, uh, just stiff performance. And he pulls it off perfectly and he's able to change on a dime when he realizes he's locked in the room <laughs> and give that stressed look and everything. So I, I think he does exactly what needs to be done for this episode. I, I don't know what else you could really bring to it. No, I think he did a, a tremendous job. The, what were you calling him, Paul? Uh, William Sturka. That's the actor's name. I'm sorry. He was the chancellor. Uh, yeah. I thought it was Fritz Weaver. No, it, it, it's Fritz Weaver. Oh, William Sturka, Sturka was, was his oh, character oh, no. in uh, Third, Third from, from the, the Sun. sun. <laughs> oh, no. I'm sorry. I, the name Sturka is so great. I, I, yeah. I, I just thought I was lost. No, man. no, no, no. So I, I was lost. I, I don't know if you guys know this. I get things mixed up all the time on this show. So, yeah. Good, this man. is a wonderful. I, just, I, I didn't even catch it either. I just rolled with you. I was like, oh, yeah. That's his name. <laughs> I just feel like See, Sturka. I don't, come on, I don't come on the show enough. So, uh, I got to be going, hey, what? No, uh, Sturka sounds like a name that uh, someone that you want running the state i don't know i just, right? I just whatever i yep there you go chalk that up like if you're home doing the drinking <laughs> yeah. game i mixed up fritz the fact. weaver fritz weaver fritz weaver was fantastic yes. <laughs> yeah so sorry william sturka yeah not that guy he's still flying to earth into this future where he'll be judged as obsolete that's what's going to happen that's uh, exactly right <laughs> um yeah i just no i thought fritz weaver i thought he was great in this and i know it's unfortunate that this is we only got him twice, and the first first episode we saw him, he was very sympathetic. And this one, like, just his ability to project was great. And the way that he grabbed that microphone and just, like, belted out, like, for the state was very appropriate. What it reminded me of, uh, weirdly, was of the um, the figurehead that we saw in um, Eye of the Beholder that was on the TVs as the lady was running around the hospital where they talked yeah. about deformity. Yeah, yeah. And in, because that was a, a world of pig people, you change their faces. This almost feels like the same the same world that they're living in, and um, you can definitely tell that like Serling had, you know, he knew he knew what he believed, and he knew what he was always going to rally against. And this was a wonderful uh, medium to do it with. Oh, definitely. And it, it, it's so reflexive of, again, the, the anxieties of the period. You know, we had, t- we had talked about when we did um, 
uh, time enough at last, just exploring the anxieties of nuclear annihilation. This is kind of part and partial with that, if only just because it is engaging with the other alternative, the other great fear that instead of America being destroyed by a by nuclear holocaust, that it would be destroyed from within, that it could become like Russia, could become another one of these sorts of totalitarian states. And that was, it's the same fear that uh, drove the whole red menace and the red scare and all of the th- all of the terrible things that came out of that. But it was a genuine concern for people at the time, a concern that's still shared by plenty of people today. Yeah, and I, I guess Erling was pretty, uh, he was open about saying that it was just about totalitarianism and uh, not so much communism. But I don't know. I, I think this was definite uh, a riff on communism, especially oh, down definitely. to the viewpoint on religion and everything. Um, it, it's it had to have been. There's no way. <laughs> but that's Erling again. He, there's so many times where he's uh, not flat out said what the episodes were totally about. Yeah. So at, at this time, there was this thing coming around, which I mean, we deal with daily now, uh, planned obsolescence, where there was the idea of creating a product that definitely would uh, that, that would need to be replaced. And it was something that was happening in the manufacturing sector. And you could tell that this was also something that kind of stuck with Serling because things were built to not last forever, that they were built to be replaced once their functionality or their usefulness would be you know, gone. And knowing that we live in a world of smartphones where every time you turn around, there's a new one, it's, it's, all, it's very much more prevalent now than then. And I think it's a much bigger fear now than it was then as well. But projecting that forward of the moment that someone – no longer uh, provides, you know, any type of benefit to society perceived as such, they're gone. You know, it's a very, I could see how seeing the beginnings of that would be terrifying. And then seeing the reality of it is very terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. It it is very relevant today. I mean, you look at self checkout stuff in stores, you look at, like you said, smartphones, like who needs to go to library to look something up when you can just Google it. But even that is, kind of terrifying because half the time you don't know where your answers are coming from mm-hmm. when you google something so you know it could be provided by the state for all we know you know <laughs> it, at, at some point like when you google a question um so it, i mean that's something that we're dealing with now more than ever yeah and what i find interesting at least in the from this episode is where it falls into common narratives of our own political divides insofar that traditional conservatism at least as it's expressed today tends to express a great deal of concern about the power of the of the state particularly the monolithic state the state that can so arbitrarily state that you know you you that you can't do this that you that we decide anything that uh, people are going to do while at the same time that the, uh, we have the liberal side, which is ve- which is very much about kind of empowering people to follow their passions, to not necessarily fit within a set sort of mold that uh, society says that they should go into. A modern conservative might uh, look down upon uh, the bookish-leaning uh, Burgess Meredith in favor of, of the more blue-collar work that he did as a carpenter, whereas, uh, while at the same time condemning the state that is putting him to death 
So yeah. it was an, it's interesting to kind of see those those narratives, at least within a modern political context, albeit one that is highly, highly simple, simplified because yeah. uh, <laughs> well, and I, I we only it, have so much time to dig into the, the stuff that's going on in our world these days. That's true. And I yeah. guess maybe I'll just I'll just say this here where I feel like a snapshot of this time that in, in this world of this episode, the idea that like God was obsolete and that there was no God. Um, and that's what, you know, showed that this independent thought and creative spirit, we don't want this around, we don't want education and knowledge, is very interesting considering that a lot of what we deal with now is pushing the idea of a belief system that that is the way to go, but that still also ignores books. Like, it's it's a weird, it's, it, I mean, it is what, I don't want to say it is what it is because I don't agree with it, but it, it's, it's, it. The, the fact that Burgess Meredith's character reads the Bible because it's been outlawed for 20 years is his sign of like rebellion. Um, that that's almost a fever dream for, for a lot of what goes on now, you know, and, and, and not to, I guess I'm, maybe I'm getting political and I apologize. I've, I've been drinking. So I've been, I've been partaking of my religion, which is beer. Uh, it, it, it's <laughs> just true. Dionysian. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Praise the God of wine. Uh, but, uh, it, 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 it's just, it, I still think that the messages here still hold true no matter the amount of defiance, you know? Yeah, so, that's what I was going to yeah. say. I didn't really look at it with him reading. It doesn't matter what he was reading. Yeah. It was the fact that he was reading something that was outlawed. It was a point of defiance. That's all I took well, wasn't from that it. Wasn't that also... The point of defiance in Fahrenheit 451 wasn't that the whole thing was that there was people that memorized certain books of the Bible so it would never be lost. Wasn't that like well, kind of towards the end? Well, they mo there were people that memorized many different books. So they became yeah. sort of a living library unto themselves. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, the idea of it is it's it's interesting because, as you mentioned, that at least within the modern days, uh, religion, particularly Christianity, has been kind of rolled into a rather conservative and by extension of that controlling mindset. Now, again, this is not true of everyone, but looking at it, at least in the context of the 1960s, this was coming into a period where there was a great deal of, of questioning the role of Christianity within the American mm -hmm. experience. I mean, we were only a few years away from that classic Time magazine article or cover of Is God Dead? And you know, the, there and fr from there, there there became all of the interesting spiritual movements that came out of the 1960s and the 1970s. In some cases, it was a redefining of Christianity with the whole hippies for Christ sort of thing. It was it certainly was something that was a part of the conversation because a lot of people were starting to question the role of God in the, in their society. We're starting to question the role of the church in there. And then on top of that, you had the great totalitarian powers, particularly at this point, the only one that really existed were the Russians, where in, in religion was famously outlawed. That yeah. it was the extension of that Karl Marx philosophy that was uh, sort of referenced in one of the chancellor's earlier speeches about religion being the opiate of the masses. Mm -hmm. And the idea that religion... Uh, can be viewed as a sort of uh, rebellion against this sort of statism. Mm -hmm. It all kind of fits into that mode. Yeah. 
I, I think you pretty much nailed that. <laughs> so to oh. give a little bit of insight to the episode, and I feel this, this might color some of the conversation. There was an actor, his name was Joseph uh, Schildkraut, who, who does show up later in the Twilight Zone. He was originally promised the role of Wordsworth in this episode because Sterling really liked this actor. Um, but the director and Buck Houghton, the producer, wanted someone more straight-up Anglo-Saxon uh, that was in the role of Wordsworth that was almost undefined. Like you can't define his point of origin because they didn't want someone that was so d distinctly from uh, like, Oh, like I'm going to guess Schildkraut is like German slash Austrian slash Jewish in nature. Um, they didn't want someone to be singled out because of minority. They wanted just, they wanted to get someone that was almost like the plainest playing guy of all time. That was Anglo-Saxon. So they chose Merges Meredith, Merges Meredith, uh, Burgess Meredith. I can't say words right, but they, they, they chose him, which it works. You know, they wanted someone to stand in opposition, but you didn't single them out because of his point of origin. You singled them out because of his, his, his belief and thought process. And I thought that was interesting that they originally had someone that was from a very distinct background playing this role. Yeah, I'm, and I'm not familiar with that actor, Schildkraut, but I'm definitely going to assume he's German with a name yeah, like or, that. Yeah, I, I, but, uh, um, yeah, yeah. I believe it was either that or Austrian. I can't remember, but something something very distinct and very very um, you would have you would have noted he would probably would have stuck out more in this episode than uh, Burgess Meredith. Yeah, yeah I, that that would have definitely changed the tone of this episode. <laughs> incredibly. And one thing I will say about why Burgess Meredith, I believe, works so well in this is because he is so good at playing somebody so meek. Yeah. And that was how he's initially presented until that twist comes comes upon. And simply by the way he delivers his lines, he never uh, takes on the authoritarian tone. He never seems to gloat. But you can see that strength inside of him, mm -hmm. that resolve and inherently that faith that he has. That, you know, he is a man that is essentially martyring himself. But... Uh, he's resolved for what he's doing and he knows what he is going to do is going to have some kind of change. Yeah. And it's, it's not the physical strength, but more of his mental strength and superiority that he, uh, ends up getting the, getting over the chancellor. So it's, yeah. uh, it, it's, it's really great. And I love putting this in context with the other two Burgess Meredith episodes, because he is so meek in those other ones. And I feel like this is finally his revenge for those <laughs> other two roles. <laughs> and it just feels so good. Like even when the bomb goes off, you're like, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> like, it becomes, it's, just, it's great. Yeah. And it becomes even more interesting when we take it into consideration the, uh, what I believe is the next role that he'll have within this, but that's go looking way far As in the, the uh, that's season four, four. Yeah. or is it end of season three or no, something? Season four. I looked it up cause I was like, I thought he was in five episodes. I realized he was only in four. So we got to find more reasons to get El Goro on the show. So, well, I've, I already <laughs> called out uh, the season or episode one of season three. That's true. Because I got to I got to get me some Bronson up in here. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the the inspiration for this episode, other than Hitler and Stalin, uh, there was there was two other stories. I'm Hitler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> be careful. You need to fix what, the soundboard. Yeah. Be, be careful what you wish for, right? Because you know, uh, yeah. I'm don't Hitler. fix the soundboard, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I will quote Kevin at the end of that episode man in the bottle where he says don't be hitler so i figured that's the best way to go with that so uh so the source of the story came from two other serling stories because we found out that he's really good at kind of uh, mashing up previous works into something for the twilight zone so he wrote a radio play called um law nine concerning christmas 
which explored a future in which an unnamed town had a law passed which abolished Christmas and it abolished like Christianity, right? So the church was declared off limits uh, to this town and the story. Um, so what happens is eventually people all gather for a midnight mass on Christmas Eve and the mayor has to come around and pass judgment on them because they're violating the law. And eventually some young girl points out that Christ died for principles as well. And then everybody learned a lesson, you know, so very, very, you know, sure. like on the nose. Right. Um, but I love the yeah. name of that law nine concerning Christmas. And then there was the original pilot script that he wrote, which we've talked about on the show before, I believe called the happy place uh, for the twilight zone. So it was all about like uh, people when they're like, they get to a certain point, a certain age, AKA like Logan's run, they're put into uh, an elevator to go to the happy place. And someone finds out that the state basically just gasses the old people and kills them. And but it's more for the betterment of society because they don't have to care for the older, you know, the elderly and the sick. And it becomes this thing of once someone figures out the truth, what do they do with it? So you could definitely see how both of those kind of came together for this. Yeah, mixed with like you said, the imagery that he used during uh, um, uh, "Eye of the Beholder." Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, and also, I just want to mention at one point, um, the chancellor refers to the elderly. He says something about um, a bunch of desirable, uh, uh, sorry, too many undesirables, and that really, really kind of hit home. Like, I was like, why is this phrase from the '60s coming back now? And uh, the fact that like they kind of viewed that once someone reaches a certain age or they're no longer serving a purpose, they're out the door. And you can tell that Serling really resonated with this idea. And um, it makes me really, really wonder what the world would have thought of the first episode of the Twilight Zone being the happy place versus where is everybody? I don't know if there would have been a second episode of the Twilight Zone had that one aired. <laughs> yeah, I, that may have been it. <laughs> and and oddly enough, though, here's one other bit of trivia I found here. Uh, actually, sorry, there's two. One, the, so some church groups actually wrote in to CBS and to Cuyahoga Productions asking for copies of the teleplay. Uh, because when this episode aired, like suddenly like the younger people in the church start talking about it. So like the church reached out, so people reached out, they wanted to get copies of this and actually perform it as a play. And they didn't give permission for it to be as a play, but they'd give out the teleplay for people to read and discuss. So there was actually members of the church that got really excited for this episode. And like, I understand why, because, you know, Burgess Meredith still his principles, he's reading the Bible. It just, that... That's interesting to me that the church was reaching out for scripts in the Twilight Zone and they were giving them to them. You know, I thought yeah, that was kind of cool. That is bizarre. Um, you said that this was written as a radio play. Uh, they did, I think, when they were doing the Twilight Zone radio shows uh, more recently. Uh, Jason Alexander does this role. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I got to hunt that down because that's Is, is Kramer the Chancellor? I just want to know if that's uh, that'd be amazing if they just snuck all the cast of Seinfeld into this. That'd be so great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then one other thing, too. Uh, so the, the, the director, he had a fight with the editor on this episode because at the very end, when all the crowd surrounds the Chancellor and they're all making that weird noise. Um, the editor kept saying, yeah, like I want to edit this in a way because they're not moving. And the director's like, that's the point. So he got in a fight with the editor. And at the time there was no recourse for when an editor disagreed with the director. So this director actually contacted uh, Buzz Kulik and a couple other guys that worked for the Twilight Zone was like, Hey, this isn't right. So they actually went to like the union and, and their influence actually ended up creating the situation where the director gets final say over the edit and not the editor. 
and that has actually caused ripples across the entire um, like TV and film industry because this guy was mad because the editor wouldn't listen to him. And, and they eventually reached a happy medium where the people kind of stay still for a moment before they launch their attack. But the director wanted that to actually linger much longer. And that was because of a nightmare he had with very similar imagery. And he thought it would be enough to rattle people. And I thought that was interesting that he got mad and talked to some people and then changed the, the power that directors have over an episode. I was hoping it was going to be a fist fight and he called Buzz Kulik to come <laughs> yeah. back him up, be the heavy behind. Right. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to call anybody, call a guy named Buzz Kulik. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I thought that was interesting that they kind of started drawing lines in the sand and they let the directors have more creative control, which I believe they should, as long as the editor is performing to what they want and it's, it's a functional edit. Right. But this editor was just like, I don't like that. And he kind of kept wanting to do yeah. things the way he wanted. <laughs> uh, so I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah. Yep. But, oh, yeah. yeah, I think I think that's pretty much all I got for this episode. Uh, great, fantastic episode. I'm just I was kind of blown away that I'd never seen this before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and what struck me is because just today on social media, I posted up as kind of a preview of what we were going to be doing. Just a still image of Burgess Meredith and then um, Rod Serling's opening narration. And there were quite a few people that uh, commented saying it was their favorite episode. And it's, it's strange to me that ones that are so highly regarded by so many people uh, kind of fell through the cracks for me. Yeah. Well, and like I've said so many times, I'm sure we'll talk about it when we do the season two wrap up. Um, I thought I had seen all of these episodes <laughs> and it, it's just like, I, I think I've seen about 20% so far going. Right. And I, I just don't understand what episodes I watched and why I watch them now. <laughs> right. Well, and I thought I watched, I, I thought I watched enough of them too. And I realized I only watched like 15 of them. You know? I know I had seen like the best of series and somehow I missed this one, but it's okay. I don't think I would have understand, uh, understood it when I was watching this when I was like 10 years old. <laughs> no. <laughs> but again, that's uh, as I constantly tell you guys, it speaks to the utility of this show. If only just because it's giving me the opportunity to finally check off mm -hmm. what is a rather large part of geek nerd lore. And it's easy enough to think, oh yeah, I know the Twilight Zone, but until you really start digging in and then combine that with the commentary that you guys provide, you really get a better sense of what this show is. Well, thank well, you. Thank I, you I, for the praise. I just, I just figured, I just thought we were just two drunk guys stumbling around a room trying to find a light switch talking about the light, the Twilight Zone. That's what it kind of feels like sometimes. But you yeah. know that that even that has value. <laughs> yeah, you um, you don't truly know the Twilight Zone until you've watched Mr. Denton on Doomsday. That's yeah. what I always tell until, people. <laughs> until you watch the whole truth, that's really yeah. that's what you know. <laughs> oh Lord. Um, but yeah, no, this is like um, I I just. Considering, I feel like, and we'll get to this next week, and we're going to talk about that in a second, um, we've had kind of an uneven like back half to the season, and this is such a strong one to end on. I'm so happy, because I'm also really happy that you guys had never seen this one before, went in blind. Uh, it's just, it is, it shows what the show can do. And it ends on such a high note for the season that I'm, I'm, I'm so optimistic now for season three. Yeah, 
Yeah, and we come in strong in season three, too, so I'm excited with at least a strong cast. <laughs> 50% of a strong cast, right? We know we know one of them. I don't know, but I forget who the other one is. Uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's all I got for my notes here. Other than people, some people wrote in uh, about and complained about the episode uh, that Serling believes that four to one uh, liked it. The other ones believed he was showing communist sympathies. I don't know how they got that out of the episode, but they Yo, some people what? believed he was a secret communist. <laughs> I don't know. It was those ten year olds watching it. They just, they didn't <laughs> they understand just didn't it. understand it. <laughs> yeah, everybody was a commie in that one, right? Yep. So all right, so let's yeah, let's just uh, rate the twist. I so this this one's a hard one to rate just because. Uh, the, the the fact that um, the Chancellor would be found obsolete doesn't surprise me. The horrific animalistic attack at the end, even watching it a second time, I forgot about it the first time around. What I remembered the first time from watching it was Burgess Meredith's performance, and I forgot about the ending. Um, that caught me off guard, so I'm going to give it a three. Yeah, um, I, I think I'm going to agree with you and give it a three for the same reasons, because nothing's really... There are little moments like the power shift that happens in the room. Um, I didn't really see exactly why he lured him there. And I like the whole bomb thing. Um, and I, yeah, I love the people attacking him. And I don't think I'll ever get that sound that they make before they actually lunge at him out of my head for a long time. Um, but yeah, it it all kind of goes where you'd expect it to go as far as these characters and as far as the story. Um, but again, like th- this is our own fault of only rating the twist and not the episode. Yeah. Yeah. Cause uh, when we started doing the show, we just, we thought twilight zone, Oh, there's a twist in every episode. Perfect. But not every episode has that. What we've come as like the iconic twilight zone twist. So sometimes it's kind of hard. So I'm, I'm also going to give it a three, but this is a fantastic episode. Mm-hmm. It's probably one of my favorite episodes we've watched so far on the Twilight Zone. The only thing I wish it had, the only thing it was lacking in, was that it used stock music. And we didn't discuss that. Yeah. But there's kind of a lack of music in this. There's little bits and pieces that come in. And other than the drums that you hear in the very beginning when he's being led into the doors, there's nothing that's really effective or that stands out in the episode. And I can only imagine if, again, it can't remake the episode, but if they would have gotten like a, a Bernard Herman uh, score underneath this, even if it was just something kind of atmospheric and droney in the background, like I think it would have even elevated this episode that much higher mm-hmm. for me but it's still it, this has got to be one of my favorite episodes we've covered so far on the show yeah so. i echo pretty much everything you you gentlemen have said and also end up giving a three as i mentioned this is treading very familiar science fiction territory insofar that even though i hadn't seen this episode very early on i had a very strong sense of what the beats of the episode were going to be that by v- virtue of the fact that um Wordsworth wasn't specifying his method of execution that he was going to attempt to make a point that there would be a shift of person of behavior to show how just cowardly the this head of the state was and that they would inevitably turn on him. This all was very predictable. 
But that doesn't take away from the strength of the episode because it is still incredibly shot, particularly in the sequences in the courtroom. It is impeccably performed. And I, I'm right there with you that this is one of my favorite episodes of this season. And now that I've seen it in the context of the episodes that I have seen, it's arguably one of the better ones that I've seen of the Twilight Zone ever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, that's perfectly said. It's 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 not so much that the twist is bad. It's just that I I, I don't know. It's just uh, and it's not a problem that's predictable because it's great. It's well mm-hmm. done. It's just it's hard to rate that twist higher than a three. Yeah. So yeah, I, I mean, just don't want people to think because we've had people before call us out. And we gave we gave some episode like a two and they're like, oh, that's such a great episode. How can you give it a two? And we're like, no, 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 no. We like the episode. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just the twist. So it's kind of a problem with our rating system. Yeah, yeah. it's it's an inherent flaw that I designed early. That's going to just bring the whole thing crashing down. <laughs> it's OK. <laughs> It's a charm point of the of the series, man. It's just like the constant references to Hyperion. Yeah, yeah. right. At least we stopped counting cigarettes. So. <laughs> yeah, I just lost count. I just got tired of counting, and I'm glad because I feel like the, like like the last episode would have killed me if I had to count all the cigarettes in it. It would have been bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's going to do it for the obsolete man and season two. How fast this went by. That's that's crazy. I mean, 29, 29 episodes shouldn't be fast, but it felt like it was. So good, good one to end on. Yeah, definitely. I, uh, I feel like we went through season two way faster than we did season one. So <laughs> <laughs> feels good. All right. So, uh, Kevin, how can people get a hold of us? Um, you can find us on, uh, or if you want to get a hold of us, you can email us at strangehighwayspodcast at gmail.com. You can leave us voicemails or emails on there. Let us know what you think about the show. Um, you can like us on Facebook and Instagram at Strange Highways Podcast. Join the conversation on there. Um, you can subscribe to us and rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Satchel Podcast, Podbean, pretty much anywhere you can find podcasts. Just search us, and we will be there. And like I said, if you could rate and review us, it would really help us out. Absolutely. And El Goro, how can people find you? Well, uh, you can find me on my own podcast, Talk Without Rhythm, at TWORpodcast.blogspot.com. Um, if people aren't familiar, it is a movie discussion podcast that I put out weekly. And uh, yeah, I generally pick two films that are uh, somewhat tied together by a theme and give my own rambling discussion of them. And if you are a fan of The Wrestling, I'm also a participant in the Five Hossmen Wrestling podcast wherein i meet up with four of my very good friends including dynamo mars and johnny wolfenstein from trick or treat radio jake e from the cult of muscle and coop from coop and uh, we talk about wrestling for like five or six hours every month and that can be found at the five hossman.buzzsprout.com very nice yeah i just finished your guys discussion on uh wrestlemania it was <laughs> it was sad and depressing <laughs> by yeah. that point it was a great episode but uh you could tell everyone was tired and just did not want to talk about WrestleMania anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Much like watching yeah. WrestleMania. They were all obsolete. So, That's what happened. Yes. <laughs> but loving both those shows. And I, I think you're covering Night of the Living Dead uh, this week. I am. So, uh, 
behest of uh, Paul's cohorts over on Invasion of the Podcast, one Mr. Stephen King, no, not that one, uh, he requested that I take a look at Land of the Dead from George A. Romero, so I finally decided to get the original Night of the Living Dead on the podcast. So it should be yeah, a fun that, episode. That might give me the uh, kick in the ass to go uh, head up to Barnes & Noble and pick up that new Criterion of that, because I gotta check it out. Yeah, I still, I still haven't cracked the spine on mine, but I've seen screenshots, and goddamn, I, I never thought Night of the Living Dead could look so good. Yeah, so I think I might have to go buy that this weekend just so I can listen to your episode. There you go. All right, so, cool. um, so yeah, thank you for being on the show as always, and then we're going to see you again shortly with uh, Season 3, Episode 1, when we get there. Yep. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and I'm sure, like, so next week we're going to do our Season 2 wrap-up, and it's going to be fun. I'm really, really excited to talk about this season and look at it and, and kind of comment on everything. Uh, so, yeah, that's going to be next week. Uh, and then I don't know if we're going to do anything between Season 2 and three, Season 3. I'm sure we will. Uh, we'll figure it out. Um, who knows? Yeah. 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 If you got any suggestions, uh, movies or anything, please send us an email over at strange highways podcast at gmail.com. Um, cause we're always open to suggestions. Just please no more, uh, encounters with the unknown uh, <laughs> seven, never times again. <laughs> seven or whatever it was. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, all right, that's going to do it for us this week and for the season. And we'll see you guys next week for wrap of season two. So in the meantime, um, you know, I, I guess perform your function so you don't become obsolete. Yeah, because you don't want to be a deleted. <laughs> Wonderful! the cameras step into the light let the whole country see the strength of the state the resilience of the state the courage of the state let the whole country see the way a valiant man of steel faces his death you have a nirvana coming up too why don't you just sit down we'll have a little chat just you and me and the great equalizer <laughs>